Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk Nation Radio, the poisoning of the Pacific and who the worst culprit is. Joining us from Tokyo is John Mitchell, a British journalist and author based in Japan. In 2015, he was awarded the Foreign Correspondents Club of Japan's Freedom of the Press Lifetime Achievement Award for his investigations into human rights issues on Okinawa. His latest book, Poisoning the Pacific, reveals the environmental damage caused by decades of U.S. military operations. John Mitchell, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be talking to you this morning. Uh, thank you for coming on. Thank you for the terrific book. Uh, the uh, Before we get into the book, how did you get interested in the subject of chemical weapons? To me, there's a real family connection to chemical weapons. My great-grandfather, he was gassed in the trenches in Northern Europe during World War One. And when I heard those accounts of how he had suffered from chemical exposure during World War One, from a really early age, it gave me uh, a hatred of chemical weapons. And it made me understand just how inhumane these substances are. As I was growing up, I continued studying about chemical weapons, and I learned about the usage of Agent Orange during the Vietnam War. In university, uh, as an undergraduate, I majored in American studies, and during that time, I researched quite deeply about the Vietnam War and how these horrible, horrible chemicals, uh, dioxin and herbicides, they were sprayed all across Vietnam. And so throughout my, my youth, I had a real interest and a real hatred of weapons of mass destruction in many, many different forms. And at some point you decided to become a journalist. That goes back to my childhood. I was about nine years old and I was growing up in quite a working class community in South Wales in a city called Swansea. Um, it was quite a rough neighborhood where I lived and in that neighborhood one day, I was walking home from school, and the neighborhood, it was packed with police and um, media vehicles. And what had happened was a, a woman in a local shop, she had been murdered. Um, she'd been raped, she'd been murdered and doused in gasoline. So this killing, really near my home, this was about 100 meters away from where I lived. This killing really, really shocked our community and the police flooded our community with officers, the mass media flooded our community. And me and my friends, we followed behind the police, watching them as they did their work, watching the journalists do their work as well. About three or four days after the murder, the police arrested two brothers for killing the woman. They were homeless brothers, they were alcoholics. They had a history uh, of uh, crimes with the local police department. After a few days, the brothers admitted to killing the woman, they were tried, they were sent to prison. And my community, we felt a real sense of relief that the perpetrators of this terrible crime had been arrested. But a few years later, we learned the police had lied. The police had set up the brothers, and actually two innocent men had been sent to prison for the killing of this local woman. And the only reason that the truth 
came to light that the injustices by the police department had been revealed was thanks to journalists. Journalists had investigated the case. They made a TV documentary about it, and these two brothers were set free. So from quite an early age, I could understand that investigative journalism, it can really hold to account the powers that be. And investigative journalism, it can really help regular people to have a better life. It can really help out people and reveal these injustices that are committed against them. It's very interesting that, that that's your story, because many years ago I worked for a small-town newspaper writing about falsely imprisoned people, uh, and I ended up leaving journalism for activism because I, there wasn't enough of the sort of journalism uh, you're describing that I was uh, able to do. Um, but but you made this work as a career, and, and your latest book, uh, Poisoning the Pacific, uh, is a remarkable work of, of journalism— uh, uh, tell us about the, the origins of this book and the topic. Poison the Pacific is my first English language book. Before this, um, I've had three Japanese language books released about uh, the same subject. So for the past 10 years, I've been investigating how the American and the Japanese military have been contaminating the Western Pacific region. I've researched uh, using the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, I've interviewed whistleblowers from the American military. I've interviewed hundreds of local residents. And this research, it has taken me uh, throughout the Western Pacific region and beyond. I've been to Vietnam. I've been to Okinawa countless times. I've been to Guam. I've been to Saipan. I've been to China. And throughout this region, the story is sadly the same. Uh, military operations have devastated the environment throughout this area. One of the first times that I heard about the problems, it came actually about 10 years ago, uh, in October 2010. And in October 2010, I was traveling to the northern jungles of Okinawa. And the local villagers there, they told me that the American military had been spraying Agent Orange in the jungles during the Vietnam War era. And so hearing their stories about how they were worried that their land was contaminated, how they were worried that their children's health might be impacted, it really touched a chord with me. I've been studying about the Vietnam War throughout my undergraduate days in university, but I never realized that the American military had used Agent Orange not only in Vietnam, but in many other places throughout this region. They sprayed it in Thailand, they sprayed it along the DMZ between North and South Korea, and veterans say that they sprayed it in Guam, and also that they sprayed it on Okinawa. After interviewing those local villagers about the impact on their environment, when I got back to Tokyo, I started tracking down American veterans. And these American veterans had been stationed on Okinawa during the Vietnam War. Okinawa was the main launch pad for the Vietnam War. And these veterans, they told me that they had sprayed Agent Orange on Okinawa. They told me that they'd sprayed it to keep the base fence lines clear. They'd sprayed it to keep the runways clear. And many of these American veterans who'd served with pride and with honor in Okinawa, they were sick. Their children were sick. And their own government didn't believe them. And their own government wasn't giving them the compensation that they deserved and that they needed. 
So there's that double combination of listening to the villages of northern Okinawa, listening to the Americans who served there during the Vietnam War, and these accounts, they clicked and they, they joined together. And I realized that I was onto a big story at that time. So my first Japanese book about Agent Orange usage on Okinawa, it appeared in 2014, and that made headlines throughout Japan, and it caused uh, a lot of impact uh, throughout this country. It was the front page of the newspaper. It made uh, two or three TV documentaries based upon that research. And for me, the biggest benefit was that the Americans began to receive compensation. These Americans who've been spraying these poisons in Okinawa, the VA, the uh, Department of Veterans Affairs, they began to pay them compensation, partly thanks to the research that I've been doing. So for me, as a journalist, that was one of the high points of my career. Uh, balanced, no doubt, as you mention in the book, by the flip side, uh, that is the, the absence thus far of, of compensation for the, the people of, of Okinawa and these other uh, locations are around the Pacific, right? That's right. Uh, Okinawa was an American military colony between 1945 and 1972. And during that period, the American military, they had total control over the island of Okinawa. There was no constitution, there was no democracy. Um, unions were banned for some time. The mass media, the press was uh, censored for some of that period as well. So Okinawa was a military colony for 27 years, between 1945 and 1972. And during that time, Okinawa possessed one of the largest uh, stockpiles of weapons of mass destruction on the planet. Okinawa had more than 1,000 nuclear warheads. Okinawa had more than 300,000 chemical weapons. And there was this apocalyptic storage of WMD, weapons of mass destruction, on Okinawa during the Cold War. And during that time, there were accidents involving these terrible weapons. In the 1950s, the military accidentally fired a nuclear rocket into a harbor on Okinawa. It killed one or two service members and it skipped across the sea and sank beneath the waves. Um, later, it was recovered in secret. There was another, what we call broken arrow, uh, a lost nuclear bomb uh, from a ship a Navy ship that was sailing from Vietnam to Japan. Uh, the former nuclear warhead, massive, massive warhead, it was being uh, carried by a jet aircraft. The jet aircraft rolled off the ship during a storm. It sunk beneath the sea with a pilot and that former nuclear weapon intact. And it's still beneath that, um, off the coast of Okinawa. And so you've got to worry about the impact of, you know, plate tectonics or trawlers who uh, who dislodge that weapon that's buried there uh, beneath the sea. So there were accidents with nuclear weapons on Okinawa. Also, there were accidents with the chemical weapons that were stored on Okinawa as well. These chemical weapons, we're talking about the most toxic substances known to humanity. We're talking about VX nerve gas. We're talking about sarin nerve gas. And these weapons, they were stored in bunkers on Okinawa. And in Okinawa, the air is very humid, and Okinawa is surrounded by sea. So the combination of humid air and saltiness 
it damages the outside of these chemical weapons that are being stored. And these chemical weapons, they began to leak. And all of these new, uh, rockets and chemical weapons that were stored in Okinawa, they became degraded over time. And so one day in 1969, there were about two dozen Americans, and they were sandblasting these chemical weapons in order to get the rust off them ready for repainting. And there was a leak. And I've interviewed the service members who were exposed to these leaks of nerve agents. And what they told me was really, really surprising. The military, they used to have white rabbits in the storage areas for chemical weapons because these rabbits were more sensitive to nerve agents than humans. And one day, the military was spraying uh, these uh, chemical weapons and sandblasting material in order to clean them. And suddenly, the rabbits started to twitch and the rabbits started to die. The Americans they panicked, of course. Um, they injected themselves with antidote to stop the, the impact of the chemical weapons in their own lives. And about two dozen of these American service members in 1969, they were hospitalized with the effects of uh, exposure to nerve agent. At that time, the military didn't report the incident. Uh, they tried to keep it under wraps. But again, thanks to investigative journalists this time from the United States, they uncovered what had happened. And the scandal was so big. The scandal was so impactful in the United States that actually Nixon, uh, he declared that all of these chemical weapons would be removed from Okinawa. And Nixon announced that these chemical weapons would not be used uh, in a first instance by the United States. So this very small island of Okinawa, it has had very, very big international repercussions on American policy when it comes to weapons of mass destruction. We are speaking with John Mitchell, whose book is Poisoning the Pacific. John, in reading your book, uh, I'm struck by the the disasters, the endless disasters of the sort that you just exempt, uh, gave an example of, but uh, it seems an even bigger story is the disasters waiting to happen, the, the, the weapons going all the way back to the Japanese chemical weapons at the end of World War II that the U.S. military has apparently just put out of sight, dumped in the ocean, put in caves and sealed the caves and, and put in concrete bunkers and sold off to unsuspecting locals. And uh, it, it seems more out of sight would be, would be out of mind than any serious effort uh, to keep these things safe for, for centuries or millennia. Uh, is, is the bigger story here the disasters that are, that are looming from the reckless uh, dispersal of these weapons? I mean, what you say is exactly right. During World War II, the United States and Japan, they were the only two nations to use weapons of mass destruction in combat. Uh, Japan used chemical and biological weapons in China, exposing hundreds of thousands of people. The United States, they dropped nuclear weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And the problem with these weapons, chemical, nuclear, biological, is after the weapons are dropped, after they uh, detonate, the impact is not only short-term, the impact lasts for many, many decades. And after World War II, when America occupied Japan, the Japanese former military and the American military, they dumped chemical weapons throughout the Japanese islands. 
they put them into lakes, they put them under the ground, and they dump them at sea. As a result um, of those sea dumps around the coast of Japan, many Japanese fisher people have been exposed to mustard agent and to phosgene and other really terrible chemical weapons. In mainland China, uh, when the Japanese military left mainland China, again, they just abandoned tens of thousands of chemical weapons throughout the Chinese mainland. And even into the 21st century, uh, these chemical weapons are being discovered by local residents, and they become exposed to these chemical weapons. And this is what is so disgusting about these weapons, is that the impact lasts for many, many decades, and they stay toxic for many, many decades as well. When you look at the Marshall Islands, the Marshall Islands were a test site for American nuclear weapons tests throughout the mid to late 1940s and the 1950s. And during that period, uh, America, they detonated uh, 67 uh, nuclear weapons in the Marshall Islands for a period of 12 years. And if you average out those tests, we're talking about the equivalent of one and a half Hiroshima bombs every single day for 12 years. Many local Marshall Islanders, they were exposed to fallout. Japanese fishermen were exposed to fallout from nuclear tests as well. And what we didn't know for quite a long time was that in 1952, uh, the fallout from American nuclear test called Ivymite, um, it exposed people on Guam. So the radiation from the Marshallese test um, it spread throughout the Pacific, and it exposed people on the island of Guam, which also is an American territory. But even though Guam residents were exposed, the American government does not pay compensation yet to them today. The American government pays compensation to what we call downwinders, people exposed to fallout in the mainland United States, but they don't pay compensation to Chamorros uh, living on the island of Guam. And this pattern is repeated throughout the Pacific. It's always the people living in colonies, living in territories, who have been abandoned, who have been exposed to these, these terrible substances. And many of these people, John Mitchell, have been uh, forcibly removed from their land for these bases and test sites and storage sites, right? Over a third of Okinawans and the entire population of various islands uh, forcibly displaced by the United States military. During World War II, the Japanese military occupied many of the islands throughout the Pacific region. And the Japanese military was disgusting. They treated local residents with such brutality. They murdered them. They forced them into slave labor. And when the American military liberated these islands, there was such a moment of hope and such a moment of potential that the American military would bring democracy, the American military would bring infrastructure and develop these islands. But sadly, that didn't happen. When the military liberated these islands from brutal Japanese control, instead of helping the islanders, the military seized their best land, especially the military seized farmland, because farms were usually flat, so they could be easily converted into airstrips. After that, the American military, after displacing these residents, the American military uh, built bases on this land, 
And also the American military did uh, tests of uh, very, very dangerous chemicals on these lands as well. As I said, in the Marshall Island region, they tested nuclear weapons, displacing local residents. On Okinawa, the military tested biological weapons, and also they stored hundreds of thousands of chemical weapons. This pattern was repeated throughout the Pacific region. There was a brutal Japanese control. There was a liberation by the American military that should have brought justice to these islanders. But instead, the uh, military occupied indigenous lands. The military built bases and contaminated the soil. And because of this history of occupation, the islands were no longer self-sufficient. They couldn't grow enough crops. They couldn't raise enough cattle. They couldn't even use the fishing waters in some areas because they were used for training. And that has contributed to terrible uh, diseases in these islands today. The cancer rates are elevated. The diabetes rates are elevated. And this is a combination of an imported diet where there's no fresh food available because the military takes the best land. Also, it's a, an, uh, it's a result of many, many years of contamination that builds up in the bodies of local residents. So this is double um, injustice that's been perpetrated against the people um, of the Pacific Islands. As you may know, John Mitchell, the people in the United States are frequently told that the U.S. military's presence around the world is in the name of democracy and representative government. Uh, But if the people of Okinawa and many of these other locations uh, had their say, what would happen to the U.S. bases in in their countries? This isn't only uh, an American military problem. This is a problem with all militaries. No matter which country's military we're talking about, they contaminate. I'm from Britain, and the British military tested mustard agent on Indian troops. Uh, The British military tested nuclear weapons uh, on Aboriginal lands in Australia and in the Pacific. Uh, The Chinese military They tested nuclear weapons, exposing hundreds of thousands of Uyghurs, Muslim Uyghurs, to the tests. And, of course, uh, France, uh, they tested nuclear weapons in Algeria, uh, French Polynesia. And so this is not only an American military problem, this is a military problem. And these militaries, they always uh, target the colonies, the territories, their indigenous peoples. So no matter which military uh, is in charge of a particular region, there will always be this contamination. So a lot of the the island nations throughout this area, um, they really see militarism for what it is. Uh, Militaries, no matter which country, they don't protect regular people. Uh, Militaries always protect uh, the the needs of big business as much as possible. And you can see this combination of military and big business when it comes to Agent Orange, uh, where the makers of Agent Orange, they hid the risks of these chemicals for many, many years. And today, throughout the world, we have the problem of PFAS. Uh, PFAS, a.k.a. forever chemicals. PFAS are chemicals found in firefighting foam. And throughout the world, these uh, firefighting foams have contaminated military bases. In the United States, more than 100, excuse in the United States, more than 650 bases have been contaminated with forever chemicals. 
But in the United States, the American government admits this contamination, and it does help the communities that are being exposed. But today on Okinawa, the drinking water for about half a million people, that's roughly one-third of the residents of Okinawa Prefecture, has been poisoned by this chemical called PFAS. And the cause of this contamination is Cadena Air Base. Cadena Air Base is the largest United States Air Force installation in the Pacific region. And the usage of firefighting foam on this base has contaminated the drinking water for one-third of the prefecture's inhabitants. If this was happening in the United States, the local authorities would be able to hold the military to account to check the bases and to ensure that these problems don't happen again. But on Okinawa, because of bilateral agreements between Japan and the United States, the local authorities cannot inspect the bases. So this contamination is ongoing today. This is the largest case of drinking water contamination in the history of Okinawa. But neither the Japanese government nor the American government are doing anything to remediate this problem. I'm told also that the PFAS, you know, forever chemical pollution problem is an issue with the consumption of of seafood. Uh, But I I just want to ask you one more time, John Mitchell, we only have a a few minutes left. Do the people of Okinawa want U.S. military bases in Okinawa, or is it rather the case that there are endless protests and the election of officials that want the bases out? In the 1970s, when Okinawa reverted to Japanese control, the Japanese government made a promise to the people of Okinawa. And this promise was that the percentage of bases, um, they would be made equal to the burden of bases in mainland Japan. And the Japanese government broke that promise. Today in Okinawa, 70% of the American military presence in Japan is concentrated on that small island of Okinawa. And this concentration of the bases concentrates contamination as well. In surveys, most Okinawan people support the United States-Japan military alliance. Uh, alliance. Let me say that again, Dan. In surveys, most Okinawans support the America-Japan military alliance. But most Okinawans feel that the burden of bases on their island is disproportionate. They host 70% of the American military presence in Japan, but they only have roughly 1% of the landmass of Japan. So people in Okinawa, there are 31 bases in Okinawa. They feel that the burden of hosting the American military should be spread throughout Japan. It shouldn't only be concentrated in that prefecture. It should be spread to Tokyo. It should be spread to Osaka. And that means that the problems that are brought by the military will be spread throughout Japan. Well, there certainly are many in Okinawa uh, who I have spoken with and been in contact with who want uh, bases closed there and not opened elsewhere instead. (laughs) And I certainly do not want bases moved to Tokyo or anywhere else in Japan, uh, but closed. Uh, uh, The the book is called Poisoning the Pacific. Uh, It is a tremendous work of of research uh, and reporting. Uh, The author is John Mitchell, who's been speaking to us from Tokyo, Japan. 
can. I cannot recommend the book highly enough. Poisoning the Pacific, run out and get it. John Mitchell, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk. I really appreciate your support. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. Read or listen to today's Peace Almanac entry at peacealmanac.org. All past shows can be heard at talknationradio.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is supported by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time. <laughs>